0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Portsmouth, Virginia, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Portsmouth, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes. Not all of them specific to Portsmouth. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors.
1: Well, good morning and welcome everyone. This is James Orr, and I have what I could argue is the number one question I get from real estate investors that are just getting started. This is the class that I think most new real estate investors want to know about. The class is how to get the down payment when buying rental properties. And... (laughs) before. Before I even jump into it, I will tell you that this is not like a magic wand where like all of a sudden I point to a secret spot where all the successful real estate investors have gone to in order to get down payments in the past. It's it's not like, oh, it's it's always hidden under this one rock out in the yard. <laughs> no, it's not that at all. Oh my goodness. there's There's definitely some... I don't know, typical, more common places to go to. But a lot of times for many real estate investors, it is working, (laughs) it's getting a job and saving money. Um, And sometimes that means getting a second job or a third job and really putting in the effort. I've got some more creative strategies as well, um, but that is probably the most common one. And so you'll see it. Okay, so I'm not just talking about down payment either. I think a lot of folks think, oh, it's all about the down payment. Well, it's largely about the down payment, but it also is the total cost to close. So your down payment plus your closing costs, if you're gonna buy down the interest rate in the loan, you're doing that, You know, plus all those extra fees you have for when you're buying a property, like it's the whole thing. In addition to that, plus reserves, because you would be, you would be silly You would be foolish to invest in real estate without having adequate reserves. You're asking for trouble. So it's really not just down that about. uh, It's not just about down payment. It's about down payment plus the total cost to close plus reserves. Okay, so it's really those things. And I'll even throw in an additional one because our markets have gotten so crazy. Interest rates are now you know pushing seven percent. And it is really hard. Even with my eighty-eight strategies for improving cash flow, it's still pretty hard to do this. Especially when you're putting very little down. If you're going to do some type of like nomad strategy or creative financing strategy or something where you're you're trying to get in really really light, it is really difficult in a lot of markets. Not every market, but a lot of markets to achieve positive cash flow. So I'll even throw an additional part to this. It's not just about down payment. It's not your total cost to close, which it is, but it's also your reserves. And in some cases, if you really wanted to be a prudent real estate investor, someone who is very likely to see it through the inevitable rough times that you're bound to face, I'm not, I'm not being negative or pessimistic, it's just like you got to plan for this. You know, at some point walking down the street, your shoelace is going to come untied that just that's just the nature of shoelaces said at some point in time you're going to have your shoelace come untied may not be every time you walk may not be every week may not be every month may not be every year but at some point you got to expect the unexpected to happen and you just got to bend down tie your shoelace and move forward don't bitch and complain about it it's like you know you know this is coming you know that roofs have leaks you know that tenants occasionally don't pay rent you have to evict them It's like, uh, don't be surprised. These things happen, right? So kind of plan for this. All right, so what I was going to say though, (laughs) because I've gotten off on all sorts of tangents already, is it's not just about down payment. It's not just about the total cost to close, which is your closing costs and the down payment. It's not just about reserves. It is also about setting aside money to cover the total amount, the cumulative amount of negative cash flow you are likely to have on the rental property. And you can see this on the world's, Greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet. If you go into the overrides tab, it shows you how much cumulative negative cash flow uh, you have on a rental property that you're considering buying. And what basically is doing is it's saying, look, if rents are where they are right now when you buy the property and rents are going up at whatever number you set in there, most of the time it's set to about 3%, then eventually rents kind of creep up and your other expenses, taxes, insurance, maintenance, all those also creep up as well. But the thing that usually does not creep up is your mortgage payment. And so after a small enough period of time, usually a few years, although it can be longer depending on how bad your negative cash flow situation is. But after a certain period of time, usually rents creep up enough and the expenses on the property, the taxes, the insurance, the maintenance, vacancy, whatever else you have got going on in there, um, that usually creeps up slower than the amount of rent is going up and eventually your negative cash flow goes away. So if rents are kind of creeping up slowly over time due to inflation, then usually the amount of negative cash flow you have eventually goes to zero. So for example, let's say you bought a property that had negative $200 a month cash flow. And the next year, rents went up by 50 bucks. And so the next year, I'm oversimplifying, but next year, you only have $150 a month negative cash flow. And then the year after that, rents go up another $50. And that year, you have negative $100 a month. And the year after that, rents go up another $50 and you only have $50 negative cash flow. And then the year after that, you have break-even cash flow because rents went up another $50. So you can actually sum up you know, $200 a month times 12 months, about $2,400. The next year, it's about $150 a month negative cash flow times 12 months, which is about $1,800 plus the next year it's about $100 times 12 months which is about 1200 bucks. The next year it's $50 a month negative times 12 months which is 600 bucks. And you can go add all those together and you get whatever the number happens to be, five grandish or so, it's my guess just based on you know doing some really 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 rough math in my head. So, if you were thinking about like saving up where do you get this down payment from? It's not just down payment. It's The total cost to close, which includes your closing costs and your down payment, plus setting aside an adequate amount for reserves, you know, six months of reserves, 12 months of reserves, whatever you believe in, if you're doing something really, really safe and secure, like a savings account, or if you're doing, I'm going to take this money or or part of this money and invest in the stock market. If you are doing 12 months of reserves, like we'll talk about reserves in detail in the reserve section, but really it's that. Total cost to close plus reserves. Now I'm also telling you, if you really want to be prudent and you do have negative cash flow in your property, it might not be the worst idea in the world to also set aside that five thousand dollars in advance that you could use in order to take the negative cash flow that you have from. And you could argue it's really the negative true cash flow, the ca- the negative cash flow you'd have after you take into account the benefits from depreciation, cash flow from depreciation. But I will do an entire class on this topic alone not today because today is all about how do you come up with down payments so we've we've covered this in a previous class but this is really about down payments are really about reducing your need to have a down payment period and then also producing the down payment that you need in order to buy rental properties. So there are strategies, and we talked about this in the in the previous class a couple of days ago, and go watch the video on that, uh, about how to go buy a property where you don't need a down payment at all. All the nothing down loan programs, as an example, or maybe doing some creative financing stuff where you don't need as much down payment. So really, there are strategies to reduce your need for down payment, which is not what we're covering today. Uh, we covered that previously. And then all the strategies for producing the down payment, which is what we plan on covering right now. And as a reminder, we've been focusing in on this down payment thing because that's the class topic, but you still need to have good credit. You still need to have good income. You still need to have low or no other debt to support the loans with very few exceptions. So realize while we're talking about strategies to reduce your down payment in the previous class and strategies to produce the down payment, those are really only part of the overall equation for you being able to get the loan. You need good credit, you need good income, you need low or no other income, No lower no other debt in order to support the loans with very few exceptions. You know, the exceptions are things like creative financing and stuff. All right. So any simpleton, any fool could find a reason why, oh, that strategy won't work for me. I'm going to go through a list. I don't know. It's probably about 10 different strategies for coming up with down payment. And you're like, oh, that's, that's silly. I can't do that. I don't live in a city where that's even possible, or I don't have the ability to do that, or I'm already working 60 hours a week, or you know, input whatever reason your excuse for not doing the things that I'm going to suggest you're doing. Any fool, any simpleton can come up with a reason why that will not work for you. But it is a sign of your intelligence. It's a sign of your grit, of your resourcefulness, of your resolve to get it done no matter what comes up, to figure out a way to make the suggestions I am giving to you apply to your very specific situation. To take the general idea and say, well, that's not exactly my situation, but I could sort of look at my whatever it is like that and I could make that work and I could use that as a way to get some or all of my down payment. Okay. With that being said, here's the list. And this is the whole list, but I've got slides for... The overwhelming majority of these, and in in my opinion, these are in the order of the worst. Do not use this sort of strategy to the best, which is sort of like probably my favorite. And you could argue, you know, this one's probably a little bit higher than this one in certain situations, or this one's a liar, this one. But overall, I'm going to tell you the list of different ways to come up with down payments, the sources of down payments, and I'm going to give you the my least favorite, the one that I probably hope and wish and pray that you do not use first. And then I'll go down the list and you can decide what you want to use from the list. Okay, so the first one is investment cards. And I use that in quotes because what I'm really talking about are credit cards. Now, I am not—I don't have a separate slide on this and it is not something I would normally recommend, but I have personally used this strategy before. And I know a lot of other real estate investors have used this strategy and it's probably a pretty risky strategy, um, but this is the basic idea. You could in theory, and in practicality, but it's it's hard to do in practicality, you could use your credit card in order to go buy a property. If you have a big enough credit line, you could actually buy your property with the credit card, which is what I did, but I, I'm not suggesting you do that. You could, in a more creative way, use your credit card in order to come up with a down payment for a property. And and, and I'll, I'll show you the kind of workaround for this because it might be really, really hard for you to you know write yourself a check from the credit card you'll use your credit line and then deposit that in your bank account let it season for however long the lender requires that you season that down payment money before you can actually use it to do it but then your your balance on your credit card is really high and the monthly payment on that credit card is really high so you got to still be able to qualify for buying the property with this extra balance on there so it's really difficult to do but one way that you could do it without having to write yourself a check and do that is if you think about it you have your normal living expenses and you could, not that I'm recommending you do this, but you could decide to put all of your living expenses, every time you go get gas or groceries or whatever it is, on the credit card and save the cash that you would otherwise be using to pay for those things. Keep that in the savings account that you plan to use for your down payment and slowly over a month or two or three or six, use your credit card to pay all of your personal expenses and I, even as I say this, I'm cringing telling you this, but again, we're starting with the worst strategy, okay? But you could go ahead and you know put all of your personal expenses and all your bills and everything else on your credit card, let your credit card balance sort of build up, let your savings of the money that you would otherwise normally spend on all this other stuff kind of build up and then use that savings account money in order to put a down payment on a property in order to do that. And I will tell you, this is my least favorite strategy. I'm, I'm reluctantly even telling you about it because I do not recommend it. Okay, that being said, the next one of all the worst strategies you could possibly do, oh my gosh, because the credit card one was not bad enough. This is the next best one. One step up from using your credit cards. Oh my goodness. The next step up from using your credit cards is if you have other rental properties, and the tenants have given you security deposits, and in your state or your city, because there are probably laws for both, uh, you are allowed to do this because in some of you are, you are not allowed to do this. I'll, I'll give you an example here when we get to the slide. You could use the security deposits from your tenants to be able to go ahead and use that as a down payment to buy your next property. Again, not my favorite strategy, it is the second worst on the list, but in some really unusual cases, If you're short $1,000, $2,000, $10,000, and you have that sitting in a security deposit account and the deal of a lifetime comes along, and you have other reserves that are much more painful for you to get at. There's a whole bunch of like caveats I'm adding to this, right? right. I'm trying to paint a, a situation where I could sort of in my mind justify doing this. I personally, have never done this, uh, but you could go ahead and justify, I've done the credit card one, but you, I've not done the security deposit one, but you could justify taking some security deposits and utilizing that as down payments. We'll talk about that as a strategy. The next worst one, like slightly less worse than the security deposits and better than investment credit cards, um, is maintenance reserves. So as you own a bunch of rental properties, you should be setting aside money for maintenance on the properties. You know it's coming. We talked about this at the beginning. I mean, you know roofs are going to go bad. You know that the they're, you're going to need a plumber at some point. You know that you're going to need to replace flooring. You know you're going to need to upgrade a kitchen at some point in time. You know the HVAC system is going to go, the AC unit, the furnace. You know all those things, are the water heater, all those things are going to go out at some point. And so you should be, as like we do in deal analysis, you should be setting aside money each month to plan for those maintenance reserves. And sometimes you get lucky where you'll have a tenant that's lived in a property for 10 years and knock on wood, nothing breaks. And so you have this account balance that is growing, 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 growing for a property that you own, maybe even more than one property, you know, 5, 10, 15 properties, 20 properties. And that maintenance reserve account starts looking really attractive because you've got, $5,000, 10000 15000 50000 $100,000, sitting in this maintenance reserve count for the maintenance on all of your different properties. And you may be very tempted at some point in time to go tap into that maintenance reserve and use that for down payments. I mean, you're taking a risk because you're deciding to use that maintenance money when the roof could be due. But if you have a bunch of reserves and you have a bunch of maintenance reserves and you have access to money elsewhere, if really things got rough, you know you've got your separate IRA or 401k or um, you know you've got two hundred thousand dollars on your credit card credit line, which I'm not recommending you do this, but you know if you have like access to reserves and maybe mom or dad said, hey, listen, if you ever need money, I've got about five hundred thousand dollars. If I you know that's purely liquid, that if you needed help we could step in and assist you because we, we are very pro you doing this real estate thing. But if you want to do it on your own, do it on your own, but realize that we're here with, with a backstop of $500,000. Uh, you know, not everyone's got that, right? So you, you kind of have, you kind of like, you have a back a backstop in case the maintenance comes up once you've tapped your maintenance reserves to use this down payment. Again, this is like the low end of the list, not, not what I'd recommend. Okay. The next one up on my list, which is a little bit more reasonable, is property equity. You know, tapping existing properties that you have, um, use equity in order to buy properties. And, you know, people are like, why is that so low on your list? I mean, it's right above maintenance reserves. Yeah, because you got to make sure that the equity you're tapping into can support the thing you're doing. So you're almost like borrowing money and paying an interest rate on it in order to then go use that money to do something else. And some people are like, well, I mean, that's that's what real estate's all about. Uh, maybe. Yeah, I'm not so sure, but yeah, we can definitely d- debate that another day. So I'll go into pro- using property equity to do that. The next one is depreciation. The government gives you a tax benefit of owning a rental property. And so I think you could use the depreciation benefit, the money you're getting from depreciating your other properties to invest in down payments in future properties. And we'll talk a little bit about that. The next one on the list, and they're getting progressively better, right? You'll, you'll notice me hedging myself less as I tell you about these because they seem legit (laughs) as opposed to let me go buy a house and put it on my credit card. Seems a little bit crazy, right? Okay. Uh, The next one is retirement account. So if you have access to money in your retirement account, maybe you go and use that money. Uh, The next one on the list is family members. We'll talk a little bit about legacy nomad, but accessing uh, money from family members might be a good source of money for investing. Uh, Sell stuff you don't want or need. Seems pretty straightforward. Just, you know, some of these are like master of the obvious, right? Like the, the ones that I would not normally recommend, those are like the creative ones. I'm like, there's a reason why this is a little bit creative and you may not have heard it before because we don't usually recommend doing this, you know? But the stuff that's like very like uh, plain vanilla, mainstream, you've heard these before, master of the obvious sort of stuff. Those are the ones that you've you've heard before because they're the ones that get recommended you know about. And then as if, uh, as if Master the Obvious wasn't a, a good enough kind of thing for sell stuff you don't need or want, saving money, that's the next one on the list. You know, from a regular job, part-time job, extra job, or business to fund your retirement or build your fortune, which we'll talk about in detail. And I, I may have some interesting new math to relay to you about that. The next one on the list is partnering, you know, finding a partner who does have the rest of the down payment or all of the down payment in order for you to do that. And then I have rents, including rent from house hacking, as a source of down payments for future rental properties. And then my favorite on the list, which is lease option fees. You could do that in your marketplace. Those are probably one of my favorite sources. And I think one of the better sources uh, for down payment. You know, this is where I come into this. You know, Is, is uh, lease option fees better than saving? I don't know. I think you could make an argument either way on one of those, but I've got to put them in that order. Okay. So let's jump into each one of these. All right. So let's talk about security deposits. So With straight rentals, we're not talking about tenant buyers or anything like that. When tenants rent your property, you usually collect a security deposit. They give you a certain amount of money. In most markets, in normal times, we would set that money aside and hold it for them that if they turn the property in in worse condition or they don't pay their rent or something like that, we could then use that security deposit to make ourselves whole for the things that they were unable to fix or, you know, kind of like if they if they ditch out on us they disappear then we will have some money to kind of to be secure to be made whole for doing that okay um, these are not tenant buyer option fees we'll talk about using lease options later and with lease options a lot of the times the tenant buyer a tenant who's also going to be buying the property later using an option or a purchase contract um, a lot of times they will give us an option fee non-refundable option fee in most cases and that that money we could use so we're not talking about that we're talking about security deposits they're different okay okay But as far as security deposits go, in some states, you are unable to touch this money. It must be held in a trust account. So for example, in Colorado, you do not need to hold this money in a separate trust or escrow account if you are not a real estate licensee. If you do not have a real estate brokerage license, um, you do not need to hold it in a separate trust account. So it's a little bit flexible there if you wanted to tap into it. You do need to find out what the laws are in your own marketplace check with your attorney, uh, find out for the laws in your marketplace because in your marketplace, they may require that you do it. Like for example, here in Colorado, if you have a real estate license, you must use a trust account. You cannot keep this money in just a regular bank account. You must keep it in a special trust account, not just a a bank account that you've designated as a trust account. It's a special type of account that you get from the bank called a trust account, Um, even for your own rental properties, even if you only have one rental property. And you're not managing it. So you must, if you are a licensee in Colorado, must use a trust account, even for your own rentals. And even if it's only one rental, and if you're managing other people's rentals, you definitely need to use trust account. And honestly... If you're collecting any type of upfront money in any other business and you happen to have a real estate license in Colorado, you are supposed to keep that money in a trust account. So if you are a contractor and you're doing any type of contractor work and someone gives you money for buying materials or whatever else you're doing, you're supposed to actually keep that money in a trust account because your license actually requires that you do even if it's not for your real estate business. And this may be brand new information to some people out there who are doing like, you know, uh, fix and flips or contractor work on the side, or, you know, they kind of got that and they happen to get their real estate license so that they can get, you know, the real estate commissions or do deals a little bit cheaper or whatever, or access the MLS and so they can go look at properties. If you happen to have a real estate license, you're supposed to keep all that in there. Uh, so go talk to your attorney and uh, verify that for you. Okay. Okay. So you could use these security deposits that the tenant gives you uh, temporarily for down payments. You know, in theory, if you think about this, and and these these rules vary a little bit market to market, but in Colorado, I'm pretty sure you have to return the security deposit within 60 days. I don't do my own property management. So if you're wondering, why doesn't James know this? I don't do my own property management. I hire a company to do it. But my understanding is that you need to return the security deposit within 60 days. So if you think about it, the tenant gives you 60 days notice, 60 days before their lease expires, that they're not planning on renewing their lease. So you start marketing the property 60 days before their lease expires. Ideally, you find a tenant to replace them in the 60-day period before their lease expires that they will then, the new tenant will then go into the property you know, within a day or two of them actually exiting the property on their lease, okay? So in theory, the new tenant should give you a security deposit before the old tenant even leaves. So if you think about it, in most cases, you won't ever be without a security deposit, right? Because the the new tenant is giving you a security deposit before the old tenant even leaves. And then when the old tenant leaves, you have 60 days to like give them their security deposit back minus whatever expenses that they had on the property that was damages on the property or things like that, okay? So you should not have a period of time, if you're doing property management correctly, starting way early, getting notice early, putting the tenant in there and then doing the work that you're supposed to in order to get the tenant out. You shouldn't have a period where you don't have a a security deposit. So you could, in theory, use this money for down payments and without having a lot of risk. But I do think it's not prudent for you to use security deposits. That's why it's the lowest on the list. Well, second lowest on the list of credit cards Um for doing this. Okay, You'd still need to be able to return the security deposit when the tenant moves out. Make sure you have a plan to replace that. It's kind of one of my notes here. And if you're hiring a property manager, if you're not doing property management yourself, they will likely be holding the security deposits. And so this option will not be available to you at all. Because they're the ones holding the security deposit. You're not going to be able to tap into it. Okay, so we covered security policies. Let's talk about maintenance reserves. We recommend you set aside money for maintenance on your rental properties. This should be obvious. I mean, we talk about it during deal analysis. We talk about it during capital expense class. You know, all these different times we talk about having maintenance money set aside for your rental property. You should be saving this money in some type of account, letting it accumulate so that when you do have maintenance issues come up, you have the money to go in there and use that. But you could temporarily use this money as down payments. You know, You've been saving up down payments using traditional savings and you're very close, but the deal that you really, really want just came on the market and you're $5,000 short and you have, you know, $50,000 in credit line in your credit card and maybe $100,000 in your retirement account. So you have money elsewhere that you could use, but it's painful money to get at. And you've got this money sitting in your maintenance account that, is not being used, you could temporarily, I think, tap into the maintenance money that you've set aside, knowing full well that if a real maintenance issue came by, you have your credit card, you have your retirement accounts, you could ask mom and dad, like you have some other sources. But this is a way for you to, for a very brief period of time, This you should not live in a state where your maintenance reserve is zero because you're constantly spending it on down payments. But you could temporarily do that, in my opinion. You decide whatever is right for you. Um, you'd still need that money set aside for repairs. Another reason why new construction, lower repair need properties, because everything is brand new. Everything's at the beginning of their life cycle might be slatter, slightly better, especially for nomads early on, because you're less likely to need that repair money and you can get your reserves, and your maintenance reserves kind of can build up over time. So this is sort of like a, a plus in the column of buying new construction properties as an example. All right, so that's maintenance reserves.
0: Property equity. Oh, I just made a mess. Whoops. Let me get tissue here and wipe up the water I just spilled on my desk. Okay. There we go. Property equity.
1: If you have other rental properties or other properties in general, but rental properties, I think is is a pretty common one. If you have other properties and you have equity in those properties, you could do a cash out refinance to pull money out to then use for down payments on future properties. And the general rule is, and these can change, so check with your lender. Don't say, James told me it's 20%, so I want the 20% deal James told me about. No, your lender sets the rules. These rules can change over time. Okay, so the general rule is, you need to have more than 20% equity for owner-occupant properties, for properties that you're living in, in order to be able to do a cash-out refinance. So if you don't have at least 26%, you know, probably like 1% for some closing costs, you know, the, the fee for doing the, the cash out refi and 5% to basically pull out, you know, you may not want to even bother. Are, are you going to do a cash out refinance for 1% of the property? Probably not. Are you going to do a cash out refinance for 2%? I mean, even 5% seems a little bit low, but if you start building up some significant equities in properties. You know, you owe 50% loan to value and you can go all the way up to 80%. That seems pretty significant where you might want to tap into that to be able to do it. So for owner-occupied properties, you can go you could borrow up to 80% loan-to-value. You have to have greater than 20% equity if you think about it that way. Or for investment properties, when you're doing cash-out refinances, usually it is up to 75% loan-to-value with 25% of equity. So you can borrow up to 75% of the value of the property. So if you already owe 50%, you're gonna do a cash-out refinance, you could borrow between 50 and 75. A lot of times you're redoing the whole loan unless you do a HELOC, but you'll access that money by doing it. Now realize. If you're borrowing, especially when you're borrowing smaller and smaller amounts, um, the cost to access this money could be very high compared to the amount of money you're getting out. And I'll, I'll try to give you an example of this. So, imagine for a minute that you have an owner-occupant property, property that you're living in, and you have, you have, um, let's use actual numbers. So it's a hundred thousand dollar property. Try to make the math easy for you, and you owe seventy-five thousand dollars on it now. Okay. So you owe $75,000 on a property that's worth 100. You could technically do a cash out refinance and get up to 80% loan to value, which means you could borrow up to 80%. So there's about $5,000 of equity that you could tap into. But what does it cost you in order to access that $5,000? Well, you'd have to refinance the entire loan. You know, The $75,000 loan would go away and you'd get a new eighty thousand dollar loan. Well, what what might it cost you to do an eighty thousand dollar refinance? You know, maybe a point. You know, it it could, it could be you know flat fees, It could be you know uh, eight hundred bucks, twelve hundred bucks, fifteen hundred bucks, depending on which lender you're using. But a lot of times the lenders will say you know the rates for doing this this loan. Um, is whatever it is, 7.5% for cash out refinance because the rates are usually a little higher, but it might be 7.5% interest rate if you pay a point. If you choose not to pay a point, it could be 7.875 or 7.625. You know, it could be a slightly higher interest rate if you choose not to pay a point. But what is a point? How much does a point cost? Well, a point is 1% of the loan amount. And so if you're doing an $80,000 loan, One point of that, if my math is right, 10% would be $8,000. So one point would be $800. So it might cost you $800 to do a loan to get $5,000 out. And you're not even getting the $5,000 because that $800 needs to come from that. So you now just paid $800 to get $4,200. As a percentage, 800 in expenses to get at $4,200 is really high. I don't know exactly what that is, but it's probably, what is that? Uh, eight times five is 4,000. So that's probably in the, um, that's probably in the uh, little less than 20% range. So you're paying a 20% fee in order to get access to that money, which is why I think you need to have a larger amount of equity to make this worthwhile. Okay. Talk to your lender. They can walk you through that math. All right. Now, this works best, this strategy of of hitting property equity works best in markets appreciating much faster than our typical 3% per year that we like to use when we model stuff, okay? So if you're in a market that's fastly appreciating, this could be a strategy that you will look to more often than not. And realize the other thing is when you use your property equity, the money that you're taking out, you're paying interest on that because you borrowed it from another property. So you're paying 7% or 7.5% if you use the example I just did to access that money. It's 7% on all the money that you used to have in there, the 75% that you refinance, plus now 7% on the $5,000 that you borrowed. So unless you're getting greater than a 7.5% return on the money that you're investing the thing in, and ideally cash now money, money that's going to be able to make that monthly payment then this is probably not a good thing for you to do. You got to make sure that the money you're pulling out supports it. So if you're thinking about it this way, you just pulled out a certain amount of money and you're paying seven point five percent to access that money. The cash on cash return that you get on the on the investment you're making should be greater than seven point five percent to at least support that and be break even. And if you really wanted to be a little bit more aggressive, you'd say, well, the cash now, the cash flow. And also the cash from cash flow from depreciation, those two combined needs to be at least 7.5. That's, that's more aggressive, less conservative. I'll think of it that way, okay? And when you do these cash out refinances on your properties, they tend to be at a higher interest rate than purchase money mortgages. They tend to penalize you a little tiny bit on the interest rate when you do cash out refinances. So it, it tends to be a little bit higher. So if you actually had a really good loan because you bought the property a couple of years ago, let's say you have you know seventy five percent loan to value and it was at four percent, now you're going and looking at it refinancing out of the four percent one into a seven point five percent interest rate. You're getting hit twice because you're getting you're taking this four percent really good loan that you had and now you're actually having it at seven point five and then any money that you pull out is also at that seven point five too. So you're you're getting rid of a good loan. In order to get access to a little bit of money and that money is at a higher interest rate too now you could do something where you tap into it with a home equity line of credit and they do some of these on investment properties so you could leave the 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 lower amount in there the 75 percent that we had um sorry the the yeah because i was doing owner occupant the 75 percent of the money that you had in there for your owner occupant loan you could leave that there and then you do a home equity line of credit for the extra five percent in order to tap that, that way you leave the good interest rate on the one mortgage, and you are able to access the equity. Do it that way, and that could be helpful for you, especially if you have a really good interest rate, low interest rate on that. Okay, now I don't usually recommend this strategy if you have a tenant buyer in the property and you are using like a lease option exit, like a lease option or lease purchase to kind of get out of the property, because that equity is sort of spoken for. Especially if you've gotten a non-refundable option fee, and part of that is actually being used somewhere else. So I don't usually recommend you try to do these uh, on lease option properties, properties where the tenant buyer is buying the property from you. This is usually a strategy to use for long-term buy and hold type properties that you do not plan on selling. Or maybe you're going to sell it much later. Okay. The more properties you own in general, the harder it is to tap into property equity. Because eventually you get to what I think is the current limit is 10 loans, You get to 10 loans, they tell you, you cannot do a cash out refinance on any properties until you have less than 10 loans. And it's loans in total of all types. All all rental property loans in total, not like credit card loans or something like that, or car loan okay so the more properties you own the harder to tap into so in theory you think to yourself oh the more properties i have the more equity i will have to tap into but really you get to a practical limit where once you get beyond 10 they're like no you can't be moving equity around like that you can't be doing these refis and that rule may change that's a lender rule or maybe you find a lender where they don't they don't have that rule it's a there. so check with your lender for the current guidelines as it feels like these have changed over time so sometimes it's Four properties. Sometimes it's ten. Sometimes it's fifteen. I mean, who knows? I don't. I don't remember specifically fifteen, but I do remember at one point four. I think there was a six at one point. I think there's a ten. I, I could be remembering wrong, but that's my 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 kind of like faulty memory coming into play next for this. All right, all right. So that's property equity. Refinancing properties. So in some rare cases, interest rates declining with a portfolio of rental properties will make you want to do what's called a Rates and term refi, rather than doing a cash out refi, where you try to pull money out. Sometimes you like you bought properties at seven, like in today's marketplace, and then five years from now, maybe rates are back down to four. And so you may want to go and do a rate and term refi to improve your cash flow. You're not trying to pull money out, but you're trying to do that. Well, when you go do these rates and term refis, you're refinancing the interest rate and the term of the loan because you're going back to 30 years in a lot of cases. Although you don't have to. But a lot of times when you do these rate and term refis, you're extending out the year, the years in order to be a 30-year loan again. And so the monthly payment usually goes down a lot because the rate went down. And also you're extending the term. It used to be you borrowed you know the full amount of the purchase price over 30 years. And now you've got, you know, two-thirds or or three-fourths of the original loan balance um, that you are now spreading out over that same 30-year period that you got originally. So the the monthly payment comes down a lot. But when you do these rate and term refis, you can usually pull out, and it may vary depending on the lender and when you do these, because it may change over time, but you can usually pull out about $2,000 per property and it not be considered a cash out refinance. So- Usually, if you pull money out of a property, it's considered cash out refinance, you get hit with that penalty to the interest rate. Um, and you're limited by that loan to value number there. But if you go in there and you say, look, I want to do a rate and term refi, and they allow you to be not perfect. They allow you to say, well, I'm going to refi and you can go $2,000 over the amount that you owed previously. So you could pull two, that you could actually receive $2,000 at closing a rate and term refi, and it not be considered a cash out refinance. So If you've got 10 properties and you're refining all of them at the same time, then you might be able to go pull out, you know, $20,000, which could help get you partially in the way there for down payment. All right. Again, this is an uncommon situation, but I want you to be aware, especially since we're in a high interest rate environment now and many years from now, not six months from now, probably, but you know, five years from now, we may see interest rates decline back to be, 4%. Who knows? I mean, they could go up higher from here. Um, No one really knows. But if they do come down, realize, remember, James told me that when I do this rate and term refi, I should talk to my lender about pulling a little bit of cash out, not a cash out refinance, but a rate and term refi where I have a little bit of money coming back to me at closing. All right, that's
0: refinancing rental properties.
1: All right, let's talk about borrowing money for down payments. It could be tricky to get a lender to go along with this if it's a loan as compared to a gift, okay? But you could go and you could borrow money for a down payment from some source, okay? Making the house pay enough to cover the payment on the borrowed money. So we talked about this when I told you, you gotta make sure that the money that you're using, the money that you borrowed to invest in something else, make sure that pays enough so that you can pay the debt on the old property. And when you do your deal analysis, it's gonna say you've got a, whatever it is, 5% cash on cash return. Realize if you borrowed that money from somewhere that you may not really have a 5% cash on cash return. If you look at your overall picture, you may have just got a 0% net return because the money that you're getting a return on now needs to go and pay the other properties extra payment that you've increased. So just realize that. Um,
0: so, In some
1: ways, you could structure deals where you have interest accruing. So for example, you go to an individual who wants to loan you money and you tell them, look, I'll pay you whatever it is, 7% return on your money to borrow this money from you. However, I want the interest to accrue and I will pay you in full, plus all the interest that is due, plus compounding interest. I will pay that to you in full in five years. So right now, you don't have any monthly payment going on for that loan, but that balance on that loan is increasing. Now, why would a person who is loaning you the money be willing to say, okay, we'll let the interest accrue? Well, one example could be is if they have a retirement account where they don't, they're not seeing the monthly payment anyway. It's not like they get the payment and they can go spend that. The money is just, the balance in their account is just growing even if the monthly payment is going in there. So does it make that much of a difference for them if the money comes in monthly or if it comes in after five years in this one big chunk where they get paid back in full? And for a lot of folks, it doesn't matter. Some of them it will, but a lot of folks it doesn't matter, especially if it's in some type of retirement account. If you're talking about money outside of retirement account, they're trying to use that money to live on. You know, Grandma's loaning you $100,000 because she wants the income from that in order to be able to support herself and, and pay for living expenses. She's going to want monthly payments. She's not going to want that interest to accrue. Uh, we do have a whole separate class, which I'll put in the, the bonus section of the coaching platform on self-directed 401ks and self-directed IRAs, um, where we talk about this strategy, I believe, in there. So You can go check out that if you're interested in that. This is a bonus. It's not normally part of uh, this material. So I'll put it in there for now. Um, And then I talked about this before. For cash out refinance, does cash flow from either the new property or at least the old property cover the new debt? Because we're talking about borrowing money in order to go buy something else. We need to talk about that there. Um, And there's probably an entirely separate program coming for should I sell or refi my property? It's probably a a totally independent, completely different from this coaching program on how to uh, buy rental properties in the next 90 days when prices are high and interest rates are high and rents are lagging. An entirely separate coaching program on should I sell or refi my rental property? That is probably coming. Maybe right after this one, after I get done recording all the content for this particular uh, coaching program. Maybe I'll go on to that one because there's a whole different set of problems and discussions and applications and software and thinking about, what you do should you sell your property should you refi your property so stay tuned if that's of interest to you okay let's talk about depreciation depreciation could be thought of in two ways number one way it could be thought of as a way to reduce or to completely eliminate negative cash flow you know if you had negative $50 a month in cash flow on a property but then when you thought about the benefits you get from owning a rental property, the tax benefits you get from owning a rental property, and you realize that you're saving $150 a month in taxes by owning this particular rental property, which is probably not abnormal for a normal rental property, in mean, you know, normal price range. They vary depending on price. But if you think about it, you're getting $150 benefit back in your taxes that if you wanted to, you could go down to your job and say, hey, uh, change my exemptions so that you're taking less out of my paycheck because at the end of the year, I know I'm getting this amount back on my tax return because I'm getting this depreciation benefit on my rental properties. They would then go and adjust your exemptions, which means that they would take less out of your taxes at work, which means that you'd get more from your paychecks, whatever that is, weekly or bi-weekly or monthly, um, which means that you would actually see cash flow, improved money in your bank account by not having to pay those taxes. Each pay period. So, what you thought was a negative $50 a month by owning the, the rental property, when you combine that negative $50 a month from the cash flow portion of it with an extra $150 positive from the cash flow from depreciation, now you're net together positive $100 a month. When you combine cash flow and the cash flow from depreciation, we call that true cash flow because it takes into account the tax benefits as well. And with that, you are positive one hundred. So depreciation could reduce, in this case, or completely eliminate negative cash flow. If you had one hundred and fifty dollars a month of negative cash flow, and you got one hundred and fifty dollars in cash flow from depreciation, those offset. That is now completely eliminated. If you have three hundred dollars a month of negative cash flow, and you have one hundred and fifty dollars in cash flow from depreciation, well, it offsets one hundred and fifty of that three hundred, and you're left with still one hundred and fifty dollars negative. So you've reduced it. Okay, this tends to be. How I usually talk about it for deal analysis, especially for nomads. And when you're living in the property as an owner-occupant, you do not get depreciation. Depreciation is only on rental properties. But when you convert a property that you are living to into an investment property, then you get to take depreciation on that, and that starts. So it doesn't count while you're living in the property, unless you've got roommates. Your roommates are paying you. And then go talk to your tax advisor about how you can offset some of that with depreciation. Not all of it. But this tends to be how I discuss this when I talk about deal analysis, especially for nomads. However, it could be a totally different strategy. You could think of this in a totally different way. Instead of taking that $150 a month you are getting from cash flow from depreciation, you could say, hey, I'm not thinking of that as offsetting or improving on my cash flow. What I'm thinking about that is at the end of the year, I'm going to get $150 times times 12 months or $1,800 if my math is right. I'm going to get $1,800 at the end of the year, which I could think of as forced savings toward my down payment on my next property. Right? Instead of thinking of it as monthly to offset cash flow, or improve cash flow, you could actually think of it as a forced savings account, which at the end of the year, you get that amount back that you could then use to do down payment. So if you've got five rentals and you're getting $1,800 per rental to do that, um, if my math is right, that's like nine grand. You can think of that as getting nine grand back at the end of the year that you could then use as down payments to purchase something else, okay? Um, So yeah, think about it that way. So if you're like the type of person who has a hard time saving money, first of all, that's a skill you should work on. But if you're still working on that skill and you're not quite there yet, um, this could be a strategy to help you save money in a forced way. Um, You can can use it as a, at the end of the year, I collect this big chunk of depreciation as a rebate on your taxes rather than the cash flow monthly to do that, okay? All right, I think I covered this already. You don't get depreciation on a property unless it is a rental property. You cannot do this on your owner occupant. And I did talk about, talk to your tax advisor if you're getting uh, roommates while you're living in a property. Oh, I will make one other note here because it is time sensitive So depending on when you're listening to this, this may no longer apply to you. But as of right now, uh, this is um, March 15th of 2023. As of right now, this year, you can get what's called bonus depreciation. And I'll give you the briefest of explanations because we're talking about depreciation, but I need to do a whole separate class on this. So the idea is this um typically when you get depreciation on a rental property they take the value of the property not the land they exclude the land completely but they take the value of the buildings of the property um and they depreciate that for residential property over 27 and a half years so the amount of depreciation you get is static it's fixed okay they take the value of the buildings they divide by 27 and a half and that is the amount of depreciation you get over that time period so 27 and a half years however the government allows you to do um Two different things right now. What one thing is you can you can itemize through a uh, engineering study the different lifespans of different components to your property. So instead of taking the entire building and saying it's everything is one homogenous mass and I'm going to take the depreciation over the entire twenty seven a half years, you, if you hire an engineer to come in and do a study for you, they could say, hey, look the Carpets only have a lifespan of whatever it is. I don't know these from memory, but let's say it's five years. They could say the carpets have a lifespan of five years and they're worth X number of dollars. And so you can depreciate the carpets over five years instead of 27 and a half years. So really you're carving out part of the overall building and you're speeding up how fast you can take depreciation on certain parts. And so you could do that with you know, flooring, you could do that with kitchen cabinets, maybe you could do that with uh, roofs or windows or whatever else you want to do. The engineering studies what goes and does this. And I'm not an expert on that part, but they can go ahead and take all those things and they can speed up how fast you can collect that depreciation in such a way that what we used to be over 27 and a half years, you'd take $150 a month for the entire period. Now you might be able to take $600 a month for the first five years. And then um, you know $400 a month for the next five years after that. And then after that, it might go down below the 150, but then it's only you know $75 a month for the next, whatever that is, I, I can't do the math in my head, 17 and a half years, whatever it is, okay, so what you do is, you don't, you don't change how much depreciation you get, you change when you can take it, you kind of move it up, you compress time, and you get a little bit there, so that's that's the idea of getting an engineering study, and doing kind of like this, um, I'm forgetting the term for it, but it's this accelerated depreciation, maybe that's what it is, it's accelerated depreciation, there's a second type though as well, And my understanding is right now, temporarily in the tax code, um, this year you could take 80% of the bonus depreciation. So you can even compress time even more and get a certain amount of depreciation really far up front and get this significant amount this year as a bonus depreciation. So this year, my understanding is it's 80%. Next year, it's 60%. The year after that, it's 40%. The year after that, it's 20%. And then it goes back down to zero. And they may come back in and change the tax law. This this, this has come back in to the tax law, gone out to, in different forms, slight variations of it. So this has coming and gone into the tax code over time. Um, it, it's, it seems to be an incentive they use in order to kind of stimulate the economy. But it's it goes away. This is 80% in 2023, 60% in 2024, um, 40% in 2025, 20% in 2026, and then zero in 2027. I think that's the math. You can go check with your tax advisor to understand this. But you can get this bonus depreciation and get a lot more depreciation benefit in year one as a bonus than it is over that period of time. That's my understanding. Again, as a layman, I'm not a tax professional. Um, This is not what I do for a living. But that's my understanding of how the bonus depreciation works. And it's for a limited time. So uh, if you buy properties this year, you get the 80% bonus. If you buy it next year, you can only get a 60%. If you only get a 40%, you only get 20%, you only get a zero. Um, But you can still do that um, accelerated depreciation thing where you hire the engineering study. Um, That that still exists. That's not going away, as far as I know. Um, So anyway, that's the kind of brief talk on depreciation. Go seek out more information if that's something that's interesting to you. Talk to your tax advisor. All right, retirement accounts. So your retirement accounts and other people's retirement accounts as partners could be a source of down payments for you. You could use some of the money from your retirement account to fund your retirement, basically buy rental properties. Uh, You could change asset classes from investing in stocks or bonds or CDs to real estate. Many cases, you will need to change your retirement account from a traditional brokerage held retirement account to a self-directed retirement account in order to be able to use your own. Or if someone else is using their money, they would need to have probably a self-directed IRA or self-directed 401k or some other type of account like that in order to be able to invest in your deals, to be able to make um, a loan to you in order for you to invest that way. Okay, Um, So in some cases, it may even be worthwhile for you to pay the penalty to access the retirement account. So imagine you have just a ridiculously amazing investment property that you really need extra money in order to tap into and the penalty for accessing your retirement accounts is you know 10%. So you'd have to overcome the hurdle of paying the 10% penalty plus whatever makes sense for you to get on the on the deal itself in order to do that. But in some cases the real estate deals can be so good that it might be worthwhile doing that. Okay? All right, family members. And I have a little note in here about legacy nomad, but Going to family members might be a source of down payments for some people. Not everyone has family that is willing to do this, but a lot of people do. Um, If you share your nomad vision or whatever investing strategy vision you have um, with your family, your parents, your grandparents, your kids in some cases, um, this is especially interesting if it's already known that your kids are going to have to support you in retirement this may be a way for them to reduce the need for that support by helping you with a down payment to do the strategy. So imagine for a minute that you finally learned about this idea of doing this nomad strategy where you buy a property with little down payment, you move in there, you live there for a year, then at the end of the year, you convert that property to a rental and you repeat this process until you acquire enough rentals where you're able to do this. Well, if your kids know that they're going to need to support you in retirement anyway, and you come to them and say, look, I have uh, $10,000 in savings. I'm going to need $25,000 total in order to be able to buy this particular property to move in, live there for a year. And then I plan on converting it to a rental property. And you explain to your kids, look, if you, let, if, you if you gift me $15,000 today, I maybe even put them on title. Talk to your attorney about whether this makes sense to put them on title or not. But you're going to go move into this property. You're going to live there for a year. You're then going to convert it to a rental. You're going to use the income that you produce from that rental property to help support you in retirement. And then when you pass on, they will inherit this rental property. They may say, that sounds like a pretty good deal. Here's $15,000 today. And hopefully I won't have to support you as much in the future. That's the thought process, okay? So if you're going to go and ask your family for this stuff, I'm going to read you a quote, which I think would make a difference in how you approach them and how you think about this. So here's the quote from William Hutchison Murray. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, that ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That moment, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man could have dreamed would have come his way. Whatever you can do or dream you can do, begin it boldness has genius power and magic in it begin it now so that's the end of the quote so in general i think it's better if you're going to if you're planning on going to thanksgiving dinner and to talk to your family about this idea of maybe you might be willing to help me with my down payments or get involved in this real estate investing thing if you don't show up unprepared having done zero work You know, if if you've been doing stuff for six months before Thanksgiving dinner, going to see properties, saving money yourself, improving on your credit, learning how to manage properties, learning about the strategy, doing all the things that you are supposed to do as if they are going to say yes at the Thanksgiving table, even if they say no, but you doing the work, if you take action, if you commit and you do the things that you know you're supposed to do, I think... Someone who sees that you've been putting in effort for six months and doing all this work and doing the things that you're supposed to do at like a really high level, not half-assing it, but like you've really put in the stuff and you're really committed to doing this, I think there's a improved chance that they will go along with it. Okay? In general, it's better for you to contribute part of the down payment and ask for help making up the difference than it is for you to ask for the whole thing. In other words, don't ask your family for 100% of the down payment. You should be saving and saying, look, my savings rate right now, I've increased it. It's now at $200 a month or $2,000 a month or whatever makes sense for you. Um, and so it'll take me this number of months. But you know, if you're willing to help, we could speed this thing up and I can get going right away. Speed is going to help us have improved results, You know, whatever you need to do. Show them you're committed. Share with them what you have done and ask them if they'd be willing to help you make up the difference if you need some help demonstrate the part-time job, the education, the research, the effort, all the things that you're doing in order to get yourself there. And you are planning on doing this, whether they help or not. Then see if they help.
0: That's a better approach, in my opinion. All right. Continuing on with
1: our list. Sell stuff. Use a garage sale, a yard sale, Facebook marketplace, Craigslist, get rid of the stuff that you don't need, get money for it, use that money in order to fund the purchases of your rental properties or whatever you're doing. An added benefit, especially if you're doing Nomad, is any stuff you sell, you don't need to move. So if you're planning on moving and doing Nomad a bunch of times, become lean, sell the stuff you do not need. You don't need to have that stuff hanging around where you have to move it every time. Um, you know, create a, go read some books on uh, minimalism or essentialism or whatever the topic is that allows you to sell your stuff and kind of have a, a light spirit. Okay. All right. Working part-time on your fortune. So there's a great quote from Jim Rohn, and there's a great video about this, but he, he talks about this, and here's the quote from him. I'm working full-time on my job and part-time on my fortune because profits lead to fortune. And so Jim talks about this idea of, you know, he works his job during the day. And then in the after hours, he works part time on building his fortune, building his business. So you could work your regular job, support yourself, take as much of that job income as you can to to kind of go towards savings. But let's say you live off of all of the job income, but then get a part time job that allows you to work on your fortune where you're trying to buy back your time so that you do not have to work at your job for as long. You're using this to in order to invest in your financial independence. So, for your first, let's say you, you're in a marketplace where it's a five hundred thousand dollar purchase price for a home. So, for your first five hundred thousand dollar home, you'd need about twenty five thousand dollars. Really rough math with a five percent down payment. That's about what what you need in order to buy that rental property. So, if you work twenty extra hours per week for fifty weeks a year, you would earn twenty five thousand dollars in one year. If you earn 25000 dollars $25 per hour, or two years if you earn $12 to 50 cents per hour. So you could go get a job on selling stuff on eBay or selling stuff on Amazon, you know, like fulfillment by Amazon FBA business or uh, driving for Uber, driving for Lyft, um, fast food delivery, you know, like, uh, or, or some type of, uh, you know, Grubhub or Uber Eats or whatever the equivalent is these days, or work at a fast food restaurant or work at Walmart or work at, you know, any of these other types of places. I think, it is relatively easy to find a $12.50 per hour job. Heck, I think my burrito place is hiring at $16 an hour now. Like the burrito, the, the Qdoba burrito place that I eat for eat at lunch at, I'm pretty sure they're hiring at $16 an hour locally for me. So $12.50 should be a relatively low bar. And with some tips, if you're willing to do like fast food or drive and, and do like Uber Eats or something like that, I bet you can get pretty close to $25 an hour. So if you're willing to work 20 extra hours a week towards your fortune, you know, imagine driving for Uber Eats. You listen to uh, real estate investing podcast episodes while you're doing this. So you're you're learning and you're you're working and, and these extra hours and you're putting in the extra time in order to provide better for your for your family and for yourself and to become financially independent early and not have to work your job that maybe you love or maybe you hate for quite as long. You know, if you work this 20 hours a week for 50 weeks a year, turn 25,000 in one year. You might be able to do it if you're earning $25 an hour in two years, if you're earning $12.50 an hour. So it doesn't seem unreasonable. Or instead of doing 5% down, if you do 3% down, you'd only need $15,000 for your first home. If you work 20 hours a week at $15 an hour, you'd need to work 50 weeks to jumpstart your fortune. Okay, so about a year to do that. If you're doing 3% down. Or... Maybe you're willing to go buy your first property as a nomad or house hacker um, in a rural area around where you live and you just convert um, this extra labor to commute time. Maybe you need to commute a little bit longer, but you're willing to do that so you can get a nothing down USDA loan as an example. Different strategies. Once you have your first house, you could use that house to fund future down payments or you can continue to work part-time building your fortune. So you don't even need to do this for the entire time. If you do, it's great. I mean, it helps you get there. Um, But you could, as a totally different strategy, which we'll cover, um, you could decide to have the house, the first house you buy, contribute toward building your fortune. You could use that house as the source of future down payments, which I'll talk about, okay? So would you be willing to work 15 to 20 hours a week on your fortune if you knew your part-time business would make more than your job income within a few years. It's a question you need to ask yourself. It's different for everybody. I, I used to include this chart in a class. I think it's in the um, I think it's in the class I used to teach when I t- used to talk about uh, the uh, fixer upper nomad class. but I, I had this chart where I, I figured out how much you were making for each rental property that you bought. And it varies a little bit market to market, but but basically, In most markets, it's about a little earlier, a little less earlier, a little bit more later. But on average, over an entire life holding this rental property, it usually works out to be about $30,000 per year per property that you make. And a lot of folks, when they go and they want to do fix and flips, a lot of them have this threshold where they say, I want to make $30,000 per flip. Some people are willing to make a lot less. Some people want to make a lot more. But I think I hear a number a lot, $30,000 per flip, as a reasonable number. So if you think about this, if you do a fix and flip and you're making $30,000, that's like trading dollars for hours. You're you're doing labor in order to make that $30,000. Where you go buy a rental property, you make $30,000 per year per rental you own. Just by owning the rental property. From appreciation and debt pay down and cash flow and cash flow from depreciation, the overall return you're making is in excess of $30,000 over the life of, that loan, uh, life of that property, okay? So if you think about that, you'd rather own five, 10 rental properties where you're each making $30,000 a year than have to do the labor of fixing and flipping every single year in order to earn each one $30,000, okay? So another note on this working part-time on your fortune, and that is house hacking is mathematically like a side hustle or a second job. If you think about it, if you decide to house hack, house hacking is where you um, take part of the property that you're living in, you rent it out, like you rent out bedrooms as an example, or you buy a duplex, triplex, or fourplex, you rent out one of the other units where you're living in one of the units, okay, that's house hacking. So if you think about house hacking though, house hacking is like having a side hustle or second job, because if you imagine you rent out a bedroom and you're collecting $600 a month for that bedroom or whatever rent is for a bedroom in your marketplace, you're getting $600 a month. That's like having a $600 a month job, mathematically. So if you were making, what is it, $20 an hour? $20, is that like working 30 hours for the month? So it's almost like working seven and a half hours a week. You rent out two bedrooms, that's like working 15 hours a week. Not bad. At $20 an hour. For having roommates. So you could think of house hacking as mathematically like a side hustle or a second job. The every other year nomad. So real estate equity and positive cash flow on a nomad strategy property can be pretty significant. You know, from working a part time job at $15 per hour for 20 hours a week, it could be the same as if you did that. So if you think about the amount of money you'd make from doing nomad. It's, it's almost like you got $15 per hour working 20 hours a week for doing a property. And if you did this using like not lease option exits, and, and if you were saving that money, you could buy a Nomad property every two years. I think we did the math for that. $15 per hour working 20 hours a week is about $25,000 every two years, plus some padding on there. So you could buy a replacement property and then you're getting like the benefit of you going out and working another job yourself from the property itself. So you you buy a property, it's like you doing that for the first year of manual labor. You do it again for the next two years in order to acquire the next property, but then it's almost as if two of you are working in parallel. And then when you do the third one, it's like three of you working in parallel. One of you do a manual labor and then the two rental properties doing that. So you probably need to work your regular job in order to qualify for your loans and to pay your living expenses, but this money accumulates over time. And this part-time job is money you can invest in your fortune over time. All right, fix your uppers. Now, it might be hard if you don't have the money to do the fix-up. Got to work through that challenge. But it is starting a fixer-upper business. It's like starting a side business to do this. Sweat equity, do all the work yourself. You could finance the repairs, maybe put it on a credit card, maybe put it on, like, the Home Depot or Lowe's credit card or whatever the equivalent is around you, you could do either a traditional sale where you sell it and get it out right away or maybe you do a lease option exit where you put a tenant buyer in the property, rent it out for a period of time and then they buy it from you. You could use the profits from this as additional down payments and then you could minimize your down payment uh, by using hard money or private money or rehab loans or doing nomad to move into the property while you do the fix up. So you can use all these different strategies in order to start a fixer upper business as a source of down payments for you in the future. Partners, you could partner with somebody who has down payment money if you don't have it. You provide the deal, you do all the work, you, the partner, or some, or something else gets the loan. So either you get the loan, the partner gets the loan, or you form another LLC, or you bring in a third party person uh, who actually gets the loan for you. So you could do all this different stuff in order to structure these partnerships, but they could be sources of down payments for you as well. There are plenty of people out there if you find amazing deals that are willing to invest in real estate. All right, getting toward the end of this list uh, rents from existing rental properties. Use the cash flow on your current rentals to help fund payments for future properties. Uh, house hacking and getting roommates to help offset your current housing expenses can also be the source of down payments for this. So remember, house hacking is mathematically like getting a side hustle or an additional job. Just use the money from any pro- anything you're house hacking with in your current property you're living in, plus any of the rents you've got coming in from any rental properties that contributes, raises your savings rate, so that you can end up acquiring properties faster and faster over time. If you've seen me do a lot of this analysis, you'll notice a lot of times saving for the first property is the longest period of time. Then once you get that first property, the period to save for the next one tends to get sped up a little bit because you've got extra income coming in from this rental property to help offset that. All right, lease option fees. So this is like the pinnacle. This is the one that I think is probably the best. And I think we've hinted at this a little bit throughout today. But basically, if you find a person who wants to rent the property from you, but then the ability to buy it from you at some point in the future what we might call a tenant buyer. Uh, Usually we would call this generically like a rent to own program where someone is renting the property with the intention of buying it from you at some point in the future. Maybe you structure that as a lease with an option for them to buy it or what we'd call a lease option. Or maybe you want to structure it as a lease with a purchase contract for them to purchase the property, which we'd call a lease purchase. But the idea is that you find a tenant buyer a tenant who's going to become the buyer from you to put into the property who lives there for six months, a year, two years, three years, five years, whatever time period it takes in order for them to be able to qualify and buy the property. You could structure these in such a way that they give you a non-refundable option fee and it's completely negotiable. It could be refundable, but in most cases, it's a non-refundable option fee for them to be able to buy the property And it's also very negotiable as to how this applies. But in most cases, we would apply whatever option fee they give us toward them purchasing the property. So you're taking some money from them that counts as their down payments when they go to buy the property. And then they're moving in, they're living in the property as a renter for a year or two or three. And then at some point in the future, they go get a traditional loan from a lender and they buy the property with traditional financing. They cash you out. They are now the owner the amount of money they gave you as an option fee, it does apply to their purchase. You just got some of your profit upfront early on and then they're able to buy the property. You get the rest of your profit when they close, okay? So if you think about this, if you're doing the nomad strategy or you're house hacking and you're trying to buy a property, trying to go buy you know your next property and you're they're requiring you put up 5% down. Well, if the property you're currently living in that you plan on converting to a rental you say, look, instead of converting this to a rental, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to find a tenant buyer who wants to ultimately rent this property and then eventually buy it from me. And I will say to them, look, I will allow you to rent to own this property, lease option, lease purchase, whatever makes sense. And I will allow you to do that, but I need a five percent non-refundable option fee from you, which will count towards you purchasing the property when you go to buy it. But it's non-refundable. If you don't, your choice. Uh, I require 5% non-refundable option fee. Then when they give you the option fee, you can use that option fee in order to use as a down payment to purchase your next property. So the option fee you received from the tenant buyer is the same money that you use as a down payment to purchase your next property. So basically the previous house
0: is funding the purchase of the next house
1: that makes sense? Okay. So we have an entire class on this. And I, I wrote a book on this subject. It's, the strategy is called, the, the, the class title and the subsequent book title is How to Acquire a Multimillion Dollar Real Estate Portfolio Starting with Just $3,000. And the idea was you buy a house with nothing down or 1% down, um, but you could do like a USDA house where you buy not- some property with nothing down. Then you live there for a year then you find a tenant buyer who wants to lease option or lease purchase that property and they give you 5% down as an option fee you take that 5% down you use that to buy your next property now you have a tenant buyer in this one then you live in the property that with the 5% down at, at, from the option fee and the, for the next year then you convert that one to a, another tenant buyer they give you another 5% down different tenant buyer gives you another 5% down and then you repeat this process until you acquire a portfolio of rental properties at some point the tenant buyer who was in one of the earlier properties is going to cash you out. They're going to buy the property. And at that point, you usually make another profit. You make more than the 5% they gave you down. And you're making a little bit of cash flow in the meantime on the rental properties. But then that big chunk of money you use, you can then use that to help offset the down payments you need on future properties. And eventually you get to the point where enough of these are popping and you've got enough extra money where you can then start buying in addition to the ones that you're nomading into with 5% down using the option fees, you could buy additional 20% down or 25% down rentals at the same time. Because eventually some of these previous properties, the tenant buyer decides to buy the property from you and they do that. So there's an entire class on that. I'll put it in the bonus section. I think that's where I put it um, for you to go watch and to learn more about that particular strategy. Uh, if you can't find it, drop me an email. Okay, but that's the basic idea is you use lease option fees in order to source the down payments. Now you say to me, James, you know, I can't get a tenant buyer to give me
0: 5% down. Okay. So maybe
1: you need to save up 1% and get 4% from them. Well, I can't get them to give me any more than 3%. Okay you need to do the work to save up the 2% and then get the tenant buyer when they can give you 3% and that'll supplement it. So you can't get the full 5%, then work around it, you know, do something else to provide part of the down payment yourself. Uh, well, in some cases you're going to get more than you need. You're going to get 6%, 7%. It depends. Or hold out until you get 5%. You know, if, if they're like un, un if the person who comes to you says, "Look, I only have $5,000." Okay, you're not qualified to buy this house. You know, you don't have to, the first person that comes along does not need to be the one that you do this with. You might need to market your property for a month or two months or three months or six months or wherever long it takes in order to find someone who has the amount of money that you can use in order to buy the next property. Okay. So just realize that that might work that way, which leads me to my next, my next thing, which is my second to last slide. You may need to combine several strategies. You decide to do a 15% 15% down non-owner occupant loan, an investment type loan. Maybe you're able to find a tenant buyer with 5% down. Maybe you're able to partner with your realtor to get, you know, 3% to 5% down from them to kind of get them to contribute. And maybe you need to save up 5 to 8% down yourself for part-time work. So you don't need to do all of it from one source. You don't need to sell enough stuff to get 15% down. You don't need to work a job where you do 15% down all yourself. Some of these things can kind of be combined into multiple strategies. All right. In conclusion, so this is the class, right? This is the one where I get the most questions about, you know, how do I come up with down payments to my rental properties? This is it. This is all the stuff. It's not really just about down payment, though. It's really total cost to close, your closing costs, the down payment, any reserves, any kind of escrows you need to have. And your own personal reserves, if you're buying rental properties, uh, for for being a prudent investor, six months of reserves, twelve months of reserves, depending on what you're doing. Plus, we talked a little bit earlier about this idea of any cumulative negative cash flow. If you happen to be in a market where you're doing that, if you're in a market where you're in a market where you're likely to have negative cash flow, and the amount you're putting down, because look, if you put hundred percent down on a property, you probably don't have negative cash flow. So it's a combination, not just of you know, the market, it's the market with the down payment that you want to use, right? It's it's not just, hey, I got negative cash flow, because I live in, insert city here that has negative cash flow. It's, I've got negative cash flow, because I'm in a city that has uh, really kind of extreme price to rent ratios. And I only want to put down 3%, or I only want to put down 5%, or I only want to put down 20%, or I only want to put down 25%. If I put down, or I put down 70% and I only got a 30% load, this thing would cash flow. So part of it is your choice
0: in down payment. Okay. So
1: just something to think about there. And any fool can say that these ideas don't apply to them. Really, it's a sign of your intelligence, your resilience, your resolve, your grit, your tenacity, your ability to work through and be creative and solve problems to figure out how they apply to you, how you can use these strategies. Okay? You don't get any, like, you come to me and say, these don't apply to me. you have any other ideas? No. (laughs) I mean, I, I might have other ideas, but no, I don't have any other ideas you tell me, look, I could sort of twist this one and make this one work and do this. I may be like, hey, by the way, you could also do this little twist to that too. Part of it is you being creative and applying it to you. For down payments in general, we've, we've discussed in a previous class, it's about reducing the need for down payment in some cases. And as we discussed in this class in detail, it's about producing the down payment you need. Utilize the strategy or strategies that make sense for you and your particular goals. And that is all I got.